I think that in the not too distant future, uh, if you're a small business, for example, uh, looking to take out a loan, you will no longer go to your bank. Right? You will go to a particular platform where you're already spending a significant chunk of your time and the ability to effectively go from your banks being very reactive to being more proactive to actually being predictive mm -hmm. uh, is, is a big trend that is already happening now but I think that's going to continue going forward. The seamlessly unstoppable growth that fintech has enjoyed over the years is finally tapering off. We all watch with excitement the rise of neobanks, fintech platforms and crypto exchanges, but instinctively we also knew that that level of investment was not sustainable and likely due a reality check. That is not necessarily a bad thing. Our industry exists in a delicate balance of trust and stability that enables people to transact, access credit and multiply values, so regular adjustments should be seen as necessary and beneficial to the industry as a whole. That's not to say that the movement has come to a halt. Opportunities still abound for companies with compelling business models and the future of fintech is looking more exciting than ever. In a recent trip to London, we had the unique opportunity to sit down with Jeff Tisson, expert partner and global head of fintech at Bain & Company to talk about fintech trends, the pace of transformation in financial services and global perspective of what's coming down the innovation pipeline. Jeff sees plenty a reason to be excited and so do we. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for welcoming. Uh, uh, thank you so much for welcoming. Welk. Uh, let's try that again. <laughs> Jeff, thank you Good so much that. for for having us here in your office in London. No worries. Thank you so much. Uh, it's uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to see you again. Um, let's just get started. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Sure, very happy to, uh, Chris. Uh, so Jeff Tais, a uh, uh, partner at Bain & Company. Uh, I have the pleasure and privilege of leading our fintech practice globally, um, which basically means I get to do all the cool and exciting stuff that we do uh, as an organization, and we'll talk a bit more about that uh, later on. Um, I, um, uh, I spent my entire career in financial services. Uh, so I started my career as a, as a private banker uh, for uh, ABN Emro back in the days when uh, ABN was one of the world's largest financial institutions. I uh, had a phenomenal time there, uh, worked with some incredibly you know, smart people. Uh, if you fast forward to, uh, to today, so I joined Bain uh, about two years ago now. Uh, before joining Bain, I spent three years at uh, a company called 11FS, mm -hmm. uh, Fintech Consultancy. Um, uh, it was incredibly exciting too, so I ran the consulting business globally. Uh, it was incredibly exciting to have the ability to go and build that business from scratch. Um, and to take that from you know, a blank sheet of paper, a small corner office and we work you know, into the business that it eventually uh, became uh, winning some incredibly exciting work you know, with, um, with some of the biggest names in, uh, in the industry. Um, I've had the, uh, the pleasure of working in Hong Kong, in the US, in the Middle East, in various other parts of, uh, of the world um, with some of the largest financial institutions uh, uh, out there. Um, so I feel very, you know, very fortunate to have had the ability to go and do that. Um, I was on the founding team of a number of digital banks in different parts of uh, the world. Mm -hmm. um, so building a new digital bank from scratch, starting with a blank sheet of paper, um, uh, it was incredibly exciting. And then you know, to take those businesses from just an idea and then designing, scaling you know, those businesses into some of the businesses that you know, they become today mm. um, was, a, was a, fantastic, uh, a fantastic journey. 
uh, so yeah, it's been um, it's been a roller coaster ride, but a very exciting one. All right, so uh, that brings me nicely into into my first question, which is: we we all know Bain uh, from the corporate world. We know that uh, you know you have a, a very powerful voice within within various industries, but in fintech, maybe that's a new thing, at, at least at least for me. So tell us a little bit: what's what's Bain's value proposition for the fintech world, and what are the main competencies or, or areas that you're that you're touching upon things. Sure, very, very happy to, uh, Chris. So let me maybe start by explaining a little bit more about the, the types of clients that my team uh, serves. Because FinTech for Bain definitely isn't something new. Um, so there's really three types of clients that we serve in the FinTech space. Um, the first one is the incumbent banks, wealth managers, insurance players who on one hand, I'm trying to make sense of what is going on in this space and what does it mean for me as an organization. Mm -hmm. um, simple example, whether it's embedded finance, banking as a service, um, you know, Web3, digital assets more broadly, a lot of incumbent clients come to us to say, well, what does this mean? I know it's something that we need to pay attention to, mm -hmm. but how do we figure out where to play, how to win, what opportunities does this, does this provide you know, to me as an organization? But then what we're also doing is we're not just doing the, the strategy elements of that work, we're actually helping those organizations to build new propositions, new banks, new platforms, new ventures. So new, what we often refer to as, as engine two businesses. So really mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. figuring out where is new growth for the organization gonna come from. Um, so that's incredibly exciting. And that, that includes the full design, build, launch, scale of those new ventures. Mm -hmm. Then we do a ton of work with Many of the big fintech players, you know, I had the pleasure of working with three of the biggest neobanks uh, in the past couple of months, mm -hmm. for example. And the niche of that work is largely focused on what we call full potential. The business is here now, you want to get to there, what does that journey look like? And if I take some of the neobanks you know, as an example that we've been working with, the, the challenge for many neobanks is effectively exactly the same. It's pretty impressive that you manage to get to whatever level of customer numbers you manage to get to. But yeah, how do you grow average revenue per user? How do you better monetize your existing customer base? What's your plan around product and revenue diversification? How do you work towards sustainable pro profitability? Then what's your plan around further international expansion? How do you better segment your existing customer base given the you know, typically high cost of customer acquisition? Mm -hmm. So that work is incredibly interesting and exciting where we have the ability to actually work with the founding team on some of their most pressing strategic issues. And then the third pillar um, is on the investor side, where we are by far the dominant player in this space. And that really is a mix of uh, commercial due diligence on mm -hmm. behalf of some of the biggest investors in the world, uh, some private equity investors and growth investors, uh, as well as post-acquisition. And just to give you a feel for the dominant position that we have in this space, last year we were involved in 80% of all the top fintech deals globally. Okay. And why that's incredibly exciting is we don't just have the ability to work with many of the world's leading investors, we also get to do a lot of work with their portfolio companies. So it's a really nice, diverse you know, mix if you look at the types of clients that we work with in the fintech space. Right, so, so you covered the, the technology side of the incumbents, you covered the, uh, the, the, the new entrants to the market like neobanks and challengers and the investor sides, basically the entire ecosystem. Correct. Right, okay. Um, now, having worked so extensively and globally uh, you must have your, your your finger on the pulse on really what's happening in fintech globally uh, perhaps even beyond what we see uh, here in europe which uh, it's, it's its own bubble in itself what are, what's what's the trend 
that excites you the most from what you've seen globally? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and uh, you're absolutely right. I think given given the position that we're in in this space, we really have a front row seat in terms of everything that's yeah, that's going on, and that makes it really really exciting. Um, you know, to have the ability to scan the market and looking for you know the next big thing and some really really interesting and exciting companies that are happening um, you know in in the fintech space in different parts of uh, of the world. Um, in terms of key things or key trends you know, that really stand out for me that I'm particularly excited about, um, not that long ago, so a couple of weeks ago, we published a report um, focused on embedded finance, uh, mm -hmm. which we, we co-authored uh, together with our friends at Bain Capital, uh, with Matt Harris and, uh, and his team, which are just a fantastic, uh, fantastic bunch. Mm -hmm. As part of that work, we interviewed uh, over 50 of the leading players you know, in this space to really get their perspectives on why is embedded finance such a big trend at the moment. How do we think the space will evolve? And where are effectively the biggest you know, opportunities? Because embedded finance really is this umbrella term that brings together embedded payments, embedded insurance, mm. right, embedded lending, and you name it. I think that in the not too distant future, uh, if you're a small business, for example, uh, looking to take out a loan, you will no longer go to your bank. Right? You will go to a particular platform where you're already spending a significant chunk of your time and the ability to effectively go from your know, banks being very reactive to being more proactive to actually being predictive mm -hmm. uh, is, is a big trend that is already happening now but I think that's going to continue going forward. I think if you look at so the study that we did was largely focused on the US market because the embedded finance space in the US is a lot more mature. It's just a matter of time before you start to see a similar trend happening in the UK, in other parts of Europe, in Asia, in various other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. But I think the ability for embedded finance to really, really shake up the industry, and I think it forms a significant threat to customer primacy, especially if you're an incumbent bank. Mm -hmm. That is one thing. And also from an investor perspective, we see a lot of money flowing into that, uh, into that sector. A lot of new, really, really exciting businesses that are popping up. And we're doing a ton of work in this space with many of our incumbent clients at the moment who, again, are trying to understand what, what does this mean for them as an organization, figuring out where to play, how to win, what capabilities are required in order for me to be a successful player mm. uh, in this space. So that is one thing that really, really stands out for me. I think another thing that I'm particularly excited about is, on one hand, the, the small business sector. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, right, because for so many years, uh, everyone has been talking about the fact that the SME sector has been massively underserved yeah. by the incumbent banks. But only, I think, yeah, only in the last couple of years, we've seen some really, really exciting innovation mm. you know, in the SME space. And it's interesting to see as well that you know, some of the, the neil banks focused on, focusing on that segment are doing really, really well, are rapidly gaining market share, and are really challenging the dominant position that you know, many of the incumbent banks have had in this space. Mm. And um, yeah, based on a lot of the work that we're doing in this space, again, in different parts of the world, SME is definitely one of the, the key priorities for many of our incumbent banking clients. Mm -hmm. Because um, they, they realize that they've massively underinvested in this space. It's been very, very hard given you know, the, the cost of serving that segment of the market to turn it into a profitable segment. Mm -hmm. um, and the experience <coughs> tends to be very, very poor. It's basically just a retail plus plus the right. offering that many small businesses get. Mm -hmm. um, then another area that, um, yeah, that I'm very, very excited about, we're seeing a lot of exciting innovation happening is, is wealth, well, the wealth tech right. space. 
very similar story to what I was just saying about you know, the small business uh, segment. Um, we've actually, in the past couple of months, seen a fair few requests from our incumbent banking clients to support them with uh, wealth M&A. Mm. So really helping them to assess the market, looking for interesting partnership, investment, acquisition opportunities okay. to really accelerate and improve you know, their, uh, their wealth uh, offering. Um, so that's an area where it, it is still relatively early days. Mm -hmm. But I think in the next two to three years, we're going to see a lot of a lot of interesting and exciting innovation happening on uh, on uh, on that front. And then again, looking outside of the UK, you, know, you will have heard the announcement about open banking now finally becoming a thing you know, in the US. Um, I'm really really curious to see how that's going to how that's going to play out. But then. I, to me, I think if you take a step back and if you look at all the innovation that we've seen in the fintech space in the past couple of years, mm -hmm. to what extent have we really fundamentally changed the industry? Well, if you look at you know, the, the, the significant you know, numbers of people around the world that are still unbanked and underbanked that we need to bring into that financial ecosystem, yeah, that to me is, is such a vast opportunity. Mm. Right? And yeah, I think even though we, we've come a long way, um, there's still so much potential and there's still so much opportunity to really, really drive your know, innovation across every single aspect of the financial services value chain. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And uh, actually, uh, my wife and I recently went, went to Mexico. We, we spent a few, a few weeks there. Um, and while we were there, she was using her card. I won't name the bank, but she was using her card to pay. And of, co of course, the card got blocked. Uh, when we called the bank, they said, oh, it's because you had to pay when you were at the airport to buy something small. And then when you got to your destination, you had to do the same thing at the other airport so that our system would know that you were traveling and they wouldn't flag a, f a potential fraud. Okay, well, great. Can you unblock the car? No. You have to wait three weeks for us to send you a replacement. So, so I mean, had, had we not had other cards with us, we would have been in a... In a Big predicament, yeah. right? So the, the reason I'm telling you this is because we keep hearing that our industry is being disrupted, that there's a lot of innovation. And yet I think the vast, the vast majority of us, at least retail customers, we still have not experienced any significant difference in the way in which we bank. What do you think is 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 happening here? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question, man. I think um, looking at, yeah, if you take Neil Banks as an example, um, I think there are a large number of neobanks out there who I think have done a phenomenal job um, providing a, 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 a customer experience that is significantly better compared to incumbent banks. Mm -hmm. But incumbent banks haven't been sitting still. Well, and I think there's a fair few incumbent banks out there who have actually done a pretty decent job upping their game when it comes to providing a better onboarding experience or a broader digital experience. Mm -hmm. Now. Because of that, it also forces new banks to then work even harder to work towards better levels of customer primacy, which is still a massive issue for many new banks around the world. Mm -hmm. But I think you're absolutely right because despite significant levels of investment, um, despite significant enhancements in the overall customer experience that many mm -hmm. fintech players and new banks provide, we still have a long way to go before we can say, hey, this is so, this is, you're not two times better, but this is at least 10x better compared to the current experience that we're mm. seeing. 
And this is also, um, again, you know, the, the incumbent banks still have very high levels of customer privacy. A lot of you know, consumers have refused to switch all of their banking services you know, from their incumbent banks you know, to a neobank. And one of the reasons for that is, on one hand, trust. Yeah, but secondly, especially with you know, the older population, to what extent is this so much better that I'm willing to shift all of my banking relationships from my current incumbent bank mm. you know, to a new bank, for example? Yeah. Right? I think it's also important to you know, look at this through you know, more of a VC lens. Right? So if you look at the majority of new banks around the world, even the more established ones, you know, they've probably been around for seven, eight years now. Mm -hmm. If you compare it to how long some of the incumbent banks have been around, yeah. right? and obviously they're, they're being criticized for, well, you need to diversify your revenue streams, you need to build a more diverse product portfolio. Uh, of course they should. Mm. But I think we also need to give these businesses time to be able to do that. Right. Right? And I'm 100% convinced that you know, given the, the phenomenal talent that exists in the fintech space, mm -hmm. that it's going to be a matter of time before you know, that experience will fundamentally improve. I also think it's interesting to look at, um, you know, obviously not just what we're seeing from a, from a, a banking perspective, but look at um, fraud and security. Mm -hmm. you know, I've come across some fantastic businesses in this space who, you know, if you look at the, the underlying infrastructure and some of the plumbing and abstracting you know, away some of the underlying complexity, that service is so much better. And we know that that's an issue for you know, not just many new banks, and we know that fraud and security uh, is a big issue for many incumbent banks mm -hmm. as well. So uh, I think a lot of the innovation that you were seeing at the moment is sort of behind the scenes. Right? It's not necessarily the, mm. you know, the, the you know, it enables a better customer experience. Yeah. But I think a lot of the things that you know, I'm also particularly excited about is the underlying infrastructure bits mm -hmm. that are currently being built. Right, 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 right. Okay. And, um, I think we, those of us who've been in the industry for a while, we've we've noticed a change a change of tone over the past, let's say, five to seven years on, on disruption and innovation. I think first we were talking about uh, the fintechs are coming. Yeah, who cares? You know, it's like there's no, no there's no concern about that. Mm -hmm. Then then some of them started to gain some market share, and at that point, big tech started flirting with industry, and then things started getting a bit hairy. Now we see fintech, uh, big tech sort of taking a step back, especially Google, uh, Facebook have just said, oh, okay, actually maybe we don't want to be in this space. Um, what's, what's the latest uh, tune that the industry, especially the incumbents are playing to when it comes to that uh, different stages of the, of the responsibility to innovation and, and transformation? Yeah, I think w what it tells you, Chris, is that um, financial services is, is hard. Mm -hmm. right? And I know many banks are often being criticized for you're not being fast enough, you're not you're really, really innovating and, and changing the organization is, is hard. Well, one of the reasons why it's, it's so bloody hard is because you're a regulated entity, mm -hmm. right? And that makes it significantly harder you know, to do some of this stuff compared to other industries, mm -hmm. for example. And I think if you look at some of the, the big technology players, I don't necessarily think that they're, they're shying away from financial services. I think you know, what you've obviously seen in the past couple of years is they're actually looking to move deeper and deeper into financial services without becoming a regulated entity. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's why you know, partnerships really are the name of the game in, in most instances. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think we've seen some fantastic levels of, of innovation coming from the big technology players. The, the thing that everyone, of course, has been concerned about, especially on the, on the banking side, is to what extent you know, will one of these big technology players become an actual bank? Mm -hmm. I mean, never say never, but I think the chances of that actually happening are very, very slim. Yeah. 
but then then being at the forefront uh, of your innovation um, you know, whether that's you know, Apple Pay, Google Pay, you know, other examples that we've seen, and then moving deeper and deeper into, you know, as I said to you before, um, that's that financial ecosystem. Um, and again, providing a fundamentally better customer experience compared to what currently exists, and sort of chipping away at the edges. Right? Yeah, that I think is an interesting development. I don't necessarily think that they're going to completely you know, move away from financial services, I actually think we're going to see quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. And that provides an interesting challenge if you're, uh, if you're a bank, for example, because mm-hmm. to what extent do you want to partner with these organizations and become the partner of choice? Um, or do you say, well, actually, it means that we're going to have to you know, give up a portion of our revenues and I'd rather fight them versus embracing them. Mm-hmm. To be fair, you know this, uh, Chris. I think what we've seen in the past couple of years, yeah, and to, to build on your earlier point, is especially on the incumbent side. You're, you're absolutely right that in the early days, well, on, on one hand, the majority of banks didn't really take these fintech players seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if you fast forward to today, now it's all about partnerships, and everyone has a, a corporate venture capital fund where they're looking to invest, you know, in, in, in some of these businesses or even acquire some of these businesses. Yeah. The, the the challenge, of course, is that if you look at the the number of successful um, acquisitions, fintech acquisitions that we've seen by incumbent banks, they're not that many. Mm. And you know, typically it leads to a culture clash. You need to think very carefully about you know, what do you want to do with these businesses? What do you want this business to be when it grows up? Yeah. Do you fully integrate this business into the mothership? Do you continue to run it as a, as a standalone business? Mm-hmm. And again, there are plenty of examples out there of your know, banks have tried to do that, but haven't been particularly successful. And, and in your experience, uh, what do you see as the main challenge between both incumbents and uh, the new entrants to form these successful partnerships? Well, I think yeah, it sounds obvious, right? but, but being clear about what are you actually looking to achieve? Mm-hmm. Right? And secondly, um, I think that the, the culture clash that mm-hmm. tends to happen between these two organizations, um, there's not necessarily an easy fix mm-hmm. for that. And I think the, the, major, yeah, the majority of fintech founders didn't necessarily set up their company to then be acquired yeah. by a large incumbent bank. Well, especially if you know, one of the goals was to go up against some <laughs> of the big boys. And you know, therefore thinking about what are some of the, 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 the key things that are required in order for this particular business to continue to thrive. And as I said to you before, I think that there's also a fundamental difference between you know, do you fully integrate this or you know, that particular organization effectively goes away and you fully integrate this into the mothership uh, or you run it as a, as a standalone business. But then you also need to be very mindful of the fact that in order for that business to thrive, you know, it needs funding, it needs autonomy, uh, it needs an acceptance within the mothership that it requires a different skill set, a different set of capabilities, yeah. a different um, mix of talent. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think that you know, many organizations have managed to, to get this right. And it's also quite frustrating because if, if you are one of those businesses that gets acquired, and suddenly everything changes, you're not necessarily being able to you know, use the, the tools that you used to, uh, you, because now you work for a large bank and certain things just aren't possible. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's important for both organizations to you'll know, find some, some, some middle ground. And again, this is all part of 
the due diligence that I think you need to do on, on both sides, really, before you decide to get acquired as an organization. Um, but also from the banking side, to what extent do you fully understand what you're signing up to and to what extent do you fully understand what is required in order to make this acquisition successful. Right. Um, okay, let's, uh, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and let's talk about the Nordics. Because as you know, we're a Nordic-based organization. We, we cover the entire Nordic uh, spectrum. Um, and the Nordics are very hermetically sealed, right? There's this very homogeneous group of countries that share a lot of values. It's a, a lot of history. Um, my question is, what have you seen in other regions around the world? that you think based on, on, on Bain's presence in the Nordics and Bain's basically global coverage that the Nordics could learn from? Well, I think first and foremost, I need to give you and, and, and the team uh, your credit for the fantastic work that you guys are doing, building that community in, in the Nordics. I think some of the innovation that has come out of, of the region has been has been phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, as a as a guest at um, yeah at Nordic FinTech Week yeah, earlier this year, I think it's yeah it's fantastic what you guys are doing. So well done. Um, uh, if you take the UK market as an example, and I think one of the reasons why uh, FinTech in the UK has managed to to really thrive you know in the past decade or so. It's a combination of different things effectively coming together to really build a thriving ecosystem. Because in order for a particular sector to thrive in a particular country or particular region, you know, what are some of the key ingredients that you need? You need angel investors mm -hmm. um, you know, to allow early stage businesses to actually yeah, set up their company and scale their business. Yeah, you need um, uh, VCs and, and, and growth investors to then take those businesses to the next level. You need incubators, you need accelerators, you need incumbents, and you need talent. Right? Mm. And then also, I think yeah, it's really important for the government has a very, very clear role to play. And I think in the UK, we've been very fortunate to, on one hand, have a very progressive regulator who's mm -hmm. been really, really pro-innovation mm -hmm. um, you know, with, um, you know, with the FCA and, and, and the CMA. Yeah, launching things like open banking. Um, but then, uh, again, if you look at how active the government um, yeah, has been um, really, really supporting the fintech sector, um, I don't necessarily think that fintech would have been as successful if it wasn't for yeah, the government, if it wasn't for the different regulators and different industry bodies coming together to really you know, support yeah, the, broader, uh, the broader agenda. Mm -hmm. And if you look at, uh, if you compare it to the US market, for example, I mean, take the regulatory landscape you know, in the US as an example, it's, it's really hard given the, the, the fragmentation that exists uh, when it comes to the US regulatory landscape. And that's something, of course, that in, in the UK, we haven't necessarily, uh, haven't necessarily uh, had. Um, I think in terms of you know, where to go from here, um, uh, and you know, we were chatting about this earlier, mm -hmm. I think we are seeing some fantastic you know, levels of innovation coming from you know, Africa, coming from different parts of the Middle East, you know, coming from uh, you know, different parts of, uh, of Asia, for example. But again, I think some of that is regulatory driven. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you're gonna need all those different you know, factors, all those different ingredients coming together in order for that broader ecosystem you know, to, uh, to thrive. Right, and we're, we're seeing a slowdown in the level of investment that we've seen in fintech over the past few years. I think everyone knew that it was, this was coming at some point, that it was not sustainable. Um, but my question is, what are the implications of the lack of cash flow that's going into the industry? And what are the opportunities, perhaps, that exist in, in these changing circumstances? Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Chris. I think, um, on one hand, you know, if you're 
a startup or if you're an investor, you've, you've been able to benefit from years and years of nonstop economic growth. Mm. And um, it was relatively easy you know, to, uh, you know, to raise funds. Um, the fact that that is no longer the case isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. Um, and I do think that you know, there will be businesses that will not survive. We're obviously seeing um, uh, quite a few layoffs you know, happening at the moment. And also a lot of founders had to go back to the drawing board um, mm. you know, to really figure out instead of pursuing hyper growth at all costs just because you can and just because you're sitting on hundreds of millions of venture capital money, mm. how do we actually build a business that is going to be around in you know, the next 5, 10, 20 years from now? Mm. How do we really work towards sustainable profitability? How do we you know, make sure that the underlying unit, unit economics are very, very healthy as opposed to spending a ton of money on cost and acquisition? Now, you could argue that all of those things should have happened to begin with, yeah. right? Um, and therefore, and even though it's, it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, right? even though it's, it's painful to see you know, what's, what's happening now, um, I think you know, the sector as a whole, I think we all got a little bit too excited. Mm. Um, and that includes all players in, you know, in this ecosystem. Um, so therefore, some of the valuations coming down to more realistic levels, um, again, isn't necessarily you know, a bad thing. But to your point, it also provides opportunities. And I do think that you know, the, those businesses that are able to weather the storm, uh, those businesses that have a very, very good foundation, those businesses that you know, manage to raise funds at the right time mm -hmm. you know, and have at least 18 to 24 months of, of runway and therefore aren't necessarily in the need to raise any capital right now and do a down round. Mm -hmm. um, so I think in the next two to three years, you will really start to separate the winners from the losers. Right. But then when it comes to early stage businesses, um, again, we're still seeing a lot of checks being written. We're still seeing a lot of incredibly exciting businesses that are popping up um, you know, at, at an early stage. We're still seeing a lot of deal flow happening um, you know, when it comes to early stage, uh, early stage fintechs. But it's going to be tougher if you're a more established business that has yet to figure out a proper you know, business model that allows you to work towards. It sounds very exciting indeed. Uh, let's just close with uh, circling back all the way to the very beginning. We started talking about the trends that excite you from what you see in, in the market. Now let's, let's fast forward five years and assume that those trends have now become part of the mainstream. What's the next best, the, the next big thing that, that will follow after that? That's a good question, uh, Chris. Um, uh, yeah, as, as we were discussing before, I think you know, despite you know, the, the, the levels of investment that we've seen in, in fintech and despite you know, the levels of investment and despite the fact that um, especially incumbent banks have spent billions and billions on so-called digital transformation, you know, I think it's fair to say that you know, I've been quite underwhelmed with the real level of change mm. you know, that we're seeing. Um, yeah, I do think that, as I mentioned before, embedded finance will fundamentally change and disrupt you know, this industry. Um, I also think that if you look at the, the underlying plumbing, I mean, if you look at some of the neobanks in different parts of the world, they're effectively still being built on old technology. Yeah. Um, but the fact that in so many different parts of the world, there's still no faster payments, you know, for example. Mm. So, um, you know, to me, I think we're, we're going to see um, some really, really exciting innovation happening is in that, you know, that infrastructure you know, layer. And basically, if you take every aspect of the financial services value chain, you know, how do you turn that into an API? Right? Payments is an API, fraud is an API, onboarding is an API. Mm. Because you know, that gives you and I the ability to 
launch new businesses so much faster, so much easier um, compared to how it's being done today. And that in itself will then unlock a whole wave of new innovation across you know, the entire industry. Yeah. And I think you know, the, the other thing I would say is what, what you're kind of seeing at the moment is you're moving up the value chain in terms of complexity. Mm -hmm. what, what I mean by that is the initial wave of innovation was all focused on, I mean, take the neobanks as an example, it was all focused on retail, it was consumer-focused you know, businesses. Now, of course, you're seeing a lot of exciting innovation happening in, you know, in the SME space. Wealth, you know, we talked about that earlier, but still relatively early days. I think when it comes to corporate banking, you know, treasury, that to me is where we're going to see a lot of really, really exciting things happening in the next couple of years. All right. Well, that's uh, definitely a future to look forward to. Um, and well, just uh, the last thing is just to thank you for, for the time and for, for sharing all these insights with us. No worries. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, always a pleasure to speak to you. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah.